You're listening to the Park Ave Pulpit, a podcast of our latest sermons at Park Avenue Baptist Church, a progressive community in Atlanta, Georgia, where all are welcomed and celebrated. If you're in the area, join us on Sundays at 10 a.m. You can also visit or donate online at parkavbaptist.com. Yeah, so that's a tough one. Um, so I've been thinking about it. I'm going to say Zora Neale Hurston. Neil deGrasse Tyson. He's on the nerd. James Baldwin's got to be there. Maya Angelou. And Bono. Let me go Bono. And i got to say lately, i got to have Bathsheba there, too. I don't know. What about you, Lance? Who you got? Who's sitting at your table? Well, first, okay, Bathsheba. Didn't see that one coming, but I like it. She's on the mind lately. Maya Angelou, 100% yes. For me, Thomas Merton. Mm. Oh, yeah. John Lewis. Yeah. Yeah. Renee Brown. Yeah. And this one may be my wild card. Aaron Sorkin. Snaps for Sorkin. Thing that I couldn't find on the internet that I was looking for. 
And it was an obscure song lyric by an obscure singer-songwriter. And even though I couldn't find a recording of the song, I at least found part of the lyrics in a 2009 blog post. Having all this information, all this technology at our fingertips, it's intoxicating. But the truth is this desire for knowledge is ancient. This idea that we could absorb all the information. I told you I'm a nerd. When I think about the burning of the library at Alexandria, I tear up. When I learned in seminary that one of the oldest copies of the Bible we have was found just a few minutes before they put it in the fire to burn for fuel at a monastery in Sinai, I was heartbroken to think of how much else we'd lost. I couldn't help but think what other works weren't spared. And maybe that sounds noble to you, but if I'm honest with myself, underneath that, underneath that lust for knowledge and information, there's something lurking that's far less honorable. I noticed this in our education system and in my journey through it. See, in our education system, we confer degrees. We've got a bachelor's degree that gives you a general foundational basis in something and then a slight narrowness in a certain field or specificity. Then we've got at the further end of the spectrum, the doctorate degree, right? Where you've gone so deep and so far in on a certain issue that not only have you mastered and accomplished all that information, you've broke new ground, you've created something new. Normally writing or researching about it in a very clear, distinct, often very wordy way. <laughs> but that degree that's in the middle, what do we call that? A master's degree. It's interesting language, isn't it? Dominion, power, ownership. The assumption is that if you have it, it implies some recognition that someone should defer to you because you have mastered this subject. For hundreds of years, we've held up mastery of a subject as something you should yearn for, strive for, earn, attain. But if you ask most anyone who has a master's, myself included, they will tell you there's lots they do not know. And we've all met brilliant people who did pioneering work in a certain field, but they can no more explain it to a stranger or actually embody what they've learned than they could invent time travel. And still, I crave that. I want to know more, but I have to recognize knowledge alone won't help me process this life that I experience. I crave knowledge, but knowledge has its limits. Every TED Talk I could ever watch, every book I could ever read, every classroom I could ever sit in might never get me the skills and discernment I need to navigate this life. Yeah, I hear you, Trey. So maybe knowledge sets a classroom, but wisdom sets a table. Wisdom is different than your IQ. It's different than that SAT score, which my brother scored higher on me, and you took when he was in seventh grade, I was eleventh grade, that's another conversation. Um, it's different, no, different than where you did or didn't go to college or what degree you did or didn't get. Right? Think about it. Intelligence alone doesn't make humans more empathetic. Wisdom does. It can. Raw intelligence doesn't reduce conflict. Wisdom does. Knowledge alone doesn't help us decipher what to do in morally ambiguous situations. Yeah. Wisdom does. Knowledge doesn't require that same level of awareness or humility or maturity. And at its worst, it can even create space for relative superiority. If we want wisdom, then maybe we need to be aware that we lack it. Our text in Proverbs today doesn't give us a concise definition of wisdom, which we'd all love, right? Instead, it personifies wisdom.
a woman who tells us what wisdom can do and what Lady Wisdom has done. Wisdom has built her house, it says. She's crafted her seven pillars. She slaughtered the animals, mixed the wine. Wisdom has set the table. Wisdom sets a table. I love this idea of woman wisdom as both a wise, detailed architect and a hospitable and welcoming host who has built this expansive house that has opened the door to us and invited us to have a seat. No RSVP needed, come as you are, no need to bring that housewarming gift or wear that cocktail attire, just come. But when you do, you're gonna have access to the finest feast around. This table is an invitation to receive and all are welcome to it. Wisdom sets a table. Mm. Yeah, that image, this table image, it makes me think that maybe the ancient Hebrews were really onto something with woman wisdom. And I do want to be clear in the text, because I didn't get this in my church growing up. Yes, she is personified as a woman. God as a woman, not an ideal for the male gaze or a tokenized grandmotherly figure. But powerful, kind, wise and welcoming, a hostess and an architect, a chef and an engineer. That's a far different picture of the wisdom that I grew up with. I remember hearing that really smart people studied philosophers like Plato and Aristotle and people whose names ended in E's, Socrates, Euripides, all those cats. But the thing is, in my education was rooted in this Western tradition, right? And it looked to a certain part of the world, this Greco-Roman idea that said, that's what knowledge is. Specifically, there were some underpinnings of that teaching. It said that the material world, the physical world, was inherently bad. And the spirit or the soul was good and noble. And that binary is so soaked into our psyche that when we're hit with an image like this, with wisdom as a hostess baking bread and setting a table, it just seems really ordinary. No grand speculation on the nature and meaning of life. No intellectual debates from men who like to hear themselves talk. No existential musings on the futility of life. Just a meal? It seems way too simple. One writer I like names this as the sin of the Western tradition. He says it this way. If we think of the wisdom of the philosophers of the Hebrews, if we think of these writings, these proverbs, as the wisdom of the philosophers, we might fall into thinking about them in terms of Greek philosophy. Unlike the Greeks, the Hebrews weren't a speculative people about abstract ideas. They didn't have a lot of place in their speech. Their speculation was less on the ultimate nature of reality than on the nature of wisdom. Less on the nature of God's being than on the way God shows up in the world. Less on the ultimate destiny of humans than how to live the good life here. When I started to realize this bill of goods that I had been sold being an heir of this Western tradition, with all of its dualism and its literal demonizing of the world, I found something in this way of integrated thinking that really resonated with me. And I couldn't quite put my finger on what it was, so I did what I knew to do. I started Googling. (laughs) Old habits die hard. It turns out that our brain is a really fascinating organ. And that there's three components in one way of looking at our brain that can be segmented. 
The reptilian brain is the oldest part of our brain. It's that part that governs survival. The cortex, the outer part, that's the latest developing part of it. That's the part that processes language and rational thought, the part that assumes all that knowledge and takes it in. But there's this middle system called the limbic system. And yes, I did have to consult Josh to make sure that my reading and research was right on this this past week. But the limbic system is a really fascinating part of our brain. You see, that's where our emotional regulation is. And it's also where our memory is. And in this limbic system, there's no capacity for language. So now think about this. The limbic system's navigating the survival part of our brain, the fight or flight kind of part of it. And it's also navigating this rational cortex part. The limbic's trying to regulate all these things at once. But it's incapable of language. You already knew this. You may not have known that you knew it. Think of all the times you've gone to make a decision. You've stacked up all the data. You've made the pro-con list. It all makes sense. You know which decision looks like it should rationally make sense on paper. And you say, I don't know. It just doesn't feel right. Yeah. Something in my gut says, well, it's your brain. This is how we were created to be. And there's no language to it. We can't articulate that thing. So we could look at all the facts, all the piles of data, and it still wouldn't matter. In other words, all of the data in all of the world will not lead us into making wise decisions. And feeling alone won't get us there either. So we can't just cut it off. We have to have that part two. The two have to work together. That's the problem with binaries. They divide. They never multiply. That's true in so much of our lives, and it's true when we talk about wisdom, too. No, exactly. So let me see if I can take what Trey said and, like, simplify it. <laughs> no, but it has me thinking, what are the parallels between wisdom and emotional intelligence? And yes, intelligence is in there. We're not knocking knowledge or knocking intelligence completely, right? We just need more than just that. Um, but wisdom and emotional intelligence. In other words, how having a wise mind helps us be more compassionate, more emotionally aware, and more invested in our search for truth. So the wise mind is common language that we use in certain modalities of therapy, especially one called dialectical behavior therapy. Uh, the wise mind is that part of each person that can know and experience truth. The wise mind is this integration of what Trey was saying, this rational mind and emotional mind. So if you have that integrated web, right, the circle's there. The rational mind being that part of us that approaches knowledge intellectually and uses facts and research, and then the emotional mind being that part of us that uses only emotions to make decisions. So either one of these head spaces aren't healthy alone, right? They're dangerous if they're isolated. But the integrated wise mind is a healthy balance of head and heart, the left brain and the right brain. So the wise integrated self is what intersects the mind, body, and spirit as dimensions of our lived and embodied experience. And you know what, it's a reminder that wisdom is within each person. It's within us. God's wisdom is within us. So knowledge needs to be entered into and lived rather than intellectualized. And wisdom is more than just a pile of facts. And information alone prevents us from living into the wisdom that God offers us. It prevents us from listening to that wisdom that is already within us. Wisdom is about living with the assumption that there's actually something to learn from what happens to you, what happens to us. It invites us to ask questions and better understand the world that we live in. It helps us figure out how to listen, how to notice patterns, how to hear new things, 
how to lean in for any introverts in the room, how to speak, right? For all of us. So, based on what I heard growing up and when I think about the Bible and talk about wisdom, there's one example that comes to mind, right? You don't need a BuzzFeed quiz to figure it out. It's this guy, Solomon. It also happens to be our other lectionary text for the day. You know, that part, God shows up to Solomon in my head, and the way the story plays out, it's kind of like the Robin Williams voice genie in Aladdin. What do you want? Solomon says, I want wisdom. I think God was braced for like true love, riches, dominion, military power. Solomon says, no, I want wisdom. And God says, jackpot, you get everything else too. It's a strange tale, a moral tale of some sorts, a fable. The idea is that if we ask for wisdom, the thing that we need to make the decisions, then we'll make better decisions. That's the lectionary text for today, but that's not all of Solomon's story now, is it? Nope. On the other hand, there's this book called Ecclesiastes. You ever heard of that? The writer of Ecclesiastes says in Solomon's voice, because at the end of Solomon's life, his life is so far in ruin that the writer of Ecclesiastes, whoever they were, they were brilliant, writes in Solomon's name and says, vanity, vanity, all is vanity. Meaningless, meaningless. It's all meaningless. Those sound a lot more like the words of an obscure male European philosopher I had to study in college than they do an ancient nomadic Hebrew king. But how did he get to this? And I have to wonder, honestly, because Solomon's story is so much about the seeking of material goods and the exploitation and degradation of women. That this is how I get Bathsheba at my table. There it is. Okay. How did she sit there after she'd watched her attacker husband go down this road and then watch her son do the same thing? I wish we had her story. I hope somebody writes it. But that's a whole other sermon for another day. But Solomon at the end of his life is at this point of total futility. How did he get this far estranged from it? I don't think it happened overnight because the Hebrews as a people for a long time had longed for a place and a home. And by the time of Solomon, not only did they have a place and a home, they've had the apex of their history during the reign of David. But now, after David's undone by his own moral failure, his own exploitation of women, Solomon at first bursts onto this scene full of wisdom. Everybody loves him. It's great. But then we find out that the apple doesn't fall very far from the tree of David. And by the end of his life, here he is. He lost the sense God had given him. And so now, I think Solomon was probably driven by a lot of things, probably including a desire to do it better than his daddy did. But he finds himself far from wisdom. And now Solomon's seat at wisdom's table, which was once a reserved chair, a plate that was only full of crumbs as he just wolfed out every morsel wisdom had to lay down. Now that plate is still, the soup's gone cold. And the crust is hardened so much that he wouldn't recognize that bread if he took a bite. Yeah, it sounds to me like Solomon got his role confused by the end. That's an understatement. But which one was he? Creature or creator? And here's what I mean, because wisdom's table is also a symbol for the cosmos. That earlier in Proverbs, we're reminded that Yahweh, by wisdom, founded the earth. So the order of wisdom's house and the table that is set for us is set to mirror the wise order that is created by the creator. But we are not the creator. 
Yes. We partake in the feast, we participate, we have a seat at the table, we act, we listen, we empathize, we gather, but we did not prepare the meal. We did not set that table. This is a humble reminder of who we are. There's no hierarchical ladder to climb at the table. Woman wisdom humbles us and calls us out of our own immaturity, out of our own ego, out of the false idea that we think we know it all. Or that our perceived power, perceived power, gives us the authority to be the head at any table. Wisdom personified calls us into surrender to the ever-present awareness that there is always, always, always something new to learn about the mystery of God, something new to learn from your neighbor, from your friend, from your brother, from your sister, from the person that you hate. About the world, there's always something new to learn about the world and about the way that we relate to one another. We did not set the table. Wisdom calls us to walk in the way of insight instead of self-direction. In a way, wisdom is the paradox of already sitting at the table and being ever on the way to it. Already and not yet, that sounds like the kingdom of God. We're already home and we're already seeking, we're always and ever seeking home. Don't you love that dance? So the path of knowledge alone can create barriers to this process of wisdom and all that it has to offer us. It can lead us to thinking that everything we know, we know with certainty. That what we know to be true now will actually be static or unshakable. So what truth are we missing out on when we gain more knowledge but limit wisdom? When did we forget that wisdom is actually an accumulated experience and instead believe that we reach some moment of perfect wisdom and information? Knowledge alone can keep us from evolving when accumulated wisdom is like a fine wine. It ferments and gets better and better with age, year after year. Already and not yet. I think most of us, or if you're like me, we've got a pretty good sense of what we think the not yet should be, where you should be in your not yet future, who should be there with you, what your not yet address should be, what your not yet salary ought to be, what the not yet family should look like, and how exactly the not yet behavior of all the parties involved should look like. We yearn for the not yet. And given a blank sheet of paper in enough time, we could start to sketch out exactly what that would look like. And even if we got the sketch wrong, the motives that drive it come from a deep place. They're tied to how we see ourselves in the world, what we understand our purpose and our identity to be. We don't build this sketch of the not yet from ignorance. We build it from our own memory, from wisdom. The wisdom that tells us who we are to be and what we truly believe. But often wisdom gets crowded out by knowledge. Well, this is what I should be. My loved ones always said that I would be. By now, at this point in my life, I thought I would have. 
And before we know it, like a weed choking out life from an entire garden, the endless possibility of the not yet has been reduced to mourning the narrow knowledge of what we thought we ought to be. Expectations that were forced on us by ourselves and others. But in that garden is a bulb. And the bulb doesn't go away. It's a perennial. It stays in the earth, and no matter what other forces are present, it finds a way, year in and year out, to bloom anyway. See, what our limbic system tells us in our brain, all of that emotion and memory tied up together without any language to give voice to it, it tells us that we know who we are in a way we cannot fully articulate. We can't do it, but we know what that is. And all the knowledge we would ever accumulate should inform who we know ourselves to be. It cannot and does not define who we are to be. Knowledge informs the already and not yet, but wisdom is the experience of the already and the not yet. Knowledge tells us our sense of smell is the strongest smell tied to memory because in the brain it connects directly to our limbic system, which is where memories are stored. Wisdom recognizes the smell of the bread bacon. And it realizes the table is set for us. Knowledge can explain where it came from, but wisdom tells us that we need this nourishment for the sake of our whole selves. So back to the table. It is set for you. But you have to ask yourself, can you sit there? Can you be there? Not be the host, not be the server, just the recipient. I'm not asking if you can serve the meal. I'm asking if you can share it. We need wisdom more than ever. We need people who are grounded and centered in something that is bigger than themselves. So will you sit at the table or not? When you come to the table, you'll find others gathered there too. In a house, in a table set large, glorious feast. At a dwelling place where life and truth have the ability to coexist. Asking questions about how the heart is transformed, how society is challenged and renewed, how history passes down the patterns of God's already and not yet kingdom. These are the questions we can ask around the table. These are the kind of conversations that are available to us. They send us on the journey towards something that isn't as independent as knowledge alone can be. There's no scientific conclusion at the table. The House of Seven Pillars is not an institution of knowledge. It's a place where we can come and participate in authentic community. Wisdom has set her table. Where do you find your seat at the table? Who do you find sitting across from you there? What wisdom do you find in their experience? And how does that shape your own experience? Knowledge sets a classroom, but wisdom sets a table. What wisdom will we find at the table? Together. Together. Thanks for listening. If you like what you heard, tell a friend and subscribe. 
as we like to say on Sunday mornings. Now go into a world that is too often unjust, knowing that the God who created you loves you and empowers you to live boldly, love inclusively, and serve creatively. Until next time.